Let's bring ourselves back to a time prior to the Civil War, just at its dawn. We have a black man who lives in freedom in the North. He has an only daughter whom he loves dearly. She is the pride and joy of her father's heart. And on her 18th birthday, he surprises her by paying for her to visit a friend in a state to to the south. The young lady is ecstatic. She hugs her father's neck as tears of joy form in his eyes. As time passes, the father grows anxious to see his daughter's face again. But on the expected day of her arrival, she does not return. Several more days pass and the father grows increasingly anxious, wondering what has happened to his daughter and adding to his concern our newspaper reports that the state where his daughter has been staying has chosen to side with the Confederacy and adopt slavery. He rides south with several trusted friends and arrives at the home of his daughter's friend where his worst suspicions are confirmed. His daughter has been seized and sold into slavery at an area plantation. Enraged, he races by horseback to the plantation with his men. And then from the shelter of a row of trees, he sees his daughter behind a shed being whipped into submission by her master. As anger and love commingle in his heart, That father vows that nothing on earth will stop him from freeing his daughter. Nothing. The zeal that fills that father's heart right at that moment, if we can grasp a piece of it, the zeal that fills that father's heart is but a faint reflection of the zeal that fills the heart of God for the liberation of His people. In the midst of our grief as a church in these days, no matter the trial or difficulty that you are facing personally today, no matter the weariness of soul, if you are God's child, you can take heart in this. No power in heaven or on earth, will ever stop God from liberating His people from bondage. He will get it done. Our Heavenly Father's heart is filled with infinite love and unceasing compassion for His people and with anger toward all who would harm them and nothing will stop His determined zeal to rescue them from bondage. This truth permeates the Bible and it is put on prominent display in these chapters of Exodus to which we have come. God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage shows us this truth about the heart of our God. We will look at chapter 11 in a moment, but I'd like us first to turn back to chapter 4, if you'll keep your finger there in chapter 11, in chapter 4 and verse 21. We remember God saying this about Israel, of His love for His people In chapter 4 and verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. In chapter 5 and verse 2, having heard this word from the Lord, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. The most powerful king on earth, ruling the most powerful army and most glorious earthly realm, stands up to God and claims sovereignty over God's people. I just illustrate, but if we could go back to that picture that I drew at the beginning. This would be like the father rushing in to save his daughter And the master of this plantation saying, 
As he says to him, let my daughter go, the master of this, ten, of this plantation says, she is not your daughter, she is my slave. That is essentially what Pharaoh is doing here to God. They are not your people, they are my slaves. God responds by striking Egypt with three cycles of three plagues. And the result is precisely what God said it would be. Pharaoh clings harder to Israel. He will not let the people of God go. He asserts his sovereignty over these people. And now to break that grip, finally, God devastates Egypt. Chapter 7 through 10, we have these first nine plagues, and we come then to the tenth plague in chapter 11 that will finally crush Pharaoh's grip on Israel. In chapter 10 and verse 27, we read, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die, Moses and Aaron. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now as we come to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11, we have something of a parenthetical statement. Something that happened, I believe, earlier. Then as we come to verse 4 of chapter 11, Moses is still before Pharaoh in this same situation. So these are the last words that he is speaking to him on his own initiative before Pharaoh. Pharaoh will call him back. But when Pharaoh says, you'll never see my face again, uh, this conversation continues in verse 4. But first, let's look at verses 1 through 3. We find here in this chapter Moses issuing the final warning to Pharaoh concerning this tenth plague. Now, verse 1 of chapter 11, the Lord had said to Moses earlier, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let, go, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. So God is never in doubt respecting Pharaoh's next move. God knows exactly what is coming. He knows what Pharaoh will freely choose. Pharaoh is not a puppet. As God hardens his heart, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But God knows what Pharaoh will do. And in preparation for this certain event, God instructs Moses, verse 2, to tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. That is, Israel, I don't think, is really here to steal from the Egyptians. That's not the command. Nor are they really instructed here to plunder the Egyptians. The Israelites are simply to request silver and gold from their Egyptian neighbors, a request that would not bring, that really would not even begin to compensate for the work that the Israelite slaves had done over these many generations for Egypt. It is a reasonable plan in God's eyes because of verse 3. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded by Egypt, in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. There's an interesting connection here. The wonders that God worked in Egypt resulted in the elevation of His people in the esteem of the Egyptians. Let's consider that. Because I think... As Christians, we tend to get this entirely backwards. A major temptation of God's people is to gain favor in the eyes of the world by being like the world. By playing the world's games. If we show that we know what is valuable to our world, then they will accept us, adopt us, and appreciate us. But the Bible's testimony is consistently in the opposite direction. If your neighbors and unsaved acquaintances, if our community will ever hold us in high esteem, it will be because God reveals His glory through our suffering. If our community, let me say it again, is ever to hold us in high esteem, if your unbelieving acquaintances are ever going to highly respect you, it will be because... They see God's glory revealed in our suffering. We do not have the time to chase that thought, but just bring to your mind Joseph. Bring to your mind the account of Daniel in Babylon. Bring to your mind the account of the church in Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts. It is on the path 
of suffering that the unbeliever sees the glories of God and comes to respect his people. Let's not get that backwards. We cannot gain the favor of this world by being like this world. And we must also keep in mind that there is no guarantee that even on the path of suffering will there be any praise for God's people. As many of our brothers and sisters in Christ know throughout this world, sometimes in this world there is nothing but persecution. But our land is elsewhere. Our home is elsewhere. And our God awaits us in glory. May we suffer well and know that sometimes along that path there will come respect from those who do not acknowledge God. Moses, the shepherd slave, is elevated in the eyes of the Egyptians. The people of Israel, these despised race of slaves, are elevated in the eyes of the Egyptians. It's only conjecture, but we would think to some degree it may well be sympathy for all that they have suffered and for the recalcitrance of Pharaoh who will not let them go. They pity the Israelites. But I think it also is that they see their God at work and know that He is real. And so God favorably disposes. He makes sure that the Egyptians are favorably disposed toward the people of Israel. And so God is faithful in calling upon the Israelites to request of their captors these riches, which they freely give. Verse 4, as we continue now back to Moses talking to Pharaoh directly, Moses said, this is what the Lord says. Here's the final warning. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, that is, from the greatest and most powerful and wealthiest to the poorest and most uninfluential. And all the firstborn of the cattle will die as well, whatever has survived the previous plagues. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. If you would be willing, would you help me here just visually? I'd like for all of those who are the firstborn in their family, if you could just raise your hand very high. And let's look around. I've got to keep mine up too. <laughs> Can you imagine what would be going on in our hearts if all of these people were killed in one night? This was a devastating plague. This was a devastating judgment. This is not a disease that indiscriminately cuts a large swath through Egypt either. This is an act of God that falls with such precision that no one could attempt to deny its source. Nor could anyone deny its excruciating pain. Can you imagine if all of those who raised their hand were gone today? and died last night. It is a horrifying thought. And this is what it took for God to crush Pharaoh's vice grip on the neck of Israel. God's motivation was the love of His firstborn son, as we read earlier in chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my people go. God will deliver His people. And among the Egyptians, this loud wailing and bitter anguish is heard. It's a horrifying scene. However, verse 7, among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Among the Israelites, there's not wailing, but peace and quiet that night. The key point here is that Israel is God's son, and Egypt will let God's son go. Indeed, Moses assures Pharaoh in verse 8, all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials 
will disregard their own lives by taking Pharaoh's prerogative. Moses will not bow to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials will bow to Moses, the shepherd slave. Moses leaves Pharaoh's court here. We notice in hot anger, in righteous indignation, he has gone beyond the point of grief for those who will die in this event. And he has come to the point of actual anger, most likely toward Pharaoh or his unyielding spirit, that it has had to come to this. With this final warning ringing in our ears, verses 9 and 10, then give a summary and an epilogue to this whole section of the plagues, as one has put it. Verse 9, the Lord has said, had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country so that the glory of God would be seen. It comes down to this last plague. As one commentator puts it, there's now no more room to maneuver. The stream of negotiation has reached the narrows, and the waters are shortly going to go crashing through the gorge. Now what do we expect to hear at this point? Here is the warning to Pharaoh. This is what will take place. There will be this judgment that comes upon you. If you do not let the people of Israel go, we expect now to hear that God's judgment comes, but that's not what we find in the text. It's rather interesting. The text of Exodus delays the account of the Exodus, and we enter into a lengthy section of instruction concerning not only what Israel is to do on the night of the Exodus, but how Israel is to commemorate this event in the future. That's amazing. More on that later, but verses 1 through 13 deal directly with this initial night of the Exodus. We have God's instructions here to Israel regarding this Passover night. Verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. You notice that phrase in Egypt in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, that seems to indicate as further uh, revelation will bear out, that this is just to deal with this night, with the Exodus itself. These instructions will not be followed into the future. But this night, the Exodus night in Egypt, here are the instructions. This month is to be for you the first month. Now that will carry through, but other issues will not. But this will carry through. This month will be the first. That is Abib, or which later is called Nisan is our March-April. That is going to become the first month. That is their whole identity is going, to be, is going to center on this Exodus event. The first month was Tishri, September-October in our calendar. And that would remain uh, the first month as far as the civil calendar. But the religious calendar was now to be adjusted and Abib or Nisan would become this first month. We have this goes on in churches sometimes, doesn't it? There's the annual calendar starting with January 1, but many times the fiscal year will start July 1. So you have sort of these two calendars operating, just a different way of looking at your life. And that it will now be the case with Israel. They have the religious calendar starting on this month, Abib, our March, April, and yet their civil calendar, their business calendar continues to start with Tishri, September, October. Just a note there. But the importance, of course, being that this month will identify who Israel is and center her focus on her history. Verse 3 of chapter 12, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Pretty straightforward instructions as to how they are to operate this night and how they are to eat in preparation for the Exodus. Verse 6, take care of them, that is the sheep or goat that you choose, until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. 
We don't know why this, this four-day waiting period, but it certainly would have caused the people to identify with this animal who's living right there in their presence for four days. And in that four-day period, in verse 6, Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On this night alone, the animal is to be killed with its blood collected and then smeared on the doorposts of the Israelite homes. That same night, verse 8, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till the morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. On this unique night, the blood of the sacrificial animal is smeared on the door frames of the house, and the animal is roasted, as Casuto suggests, probably to distinguish this meal from common spring ritual meals of the pagans in which the meat was boiled. And all remaining meat was to be destroyed, perhaps to keep the homes uncontaminated for the Egyptians who would soon be free to move in. Whatever reason, the sacrifice is to be burned, and unleavened bread is to be eaten, bread without yeast. This will symbolize the haste with which the Israelites leave their home. They don't have time for the bread to rise, to put yeast in the bread, in the dough. And so they will go with unleavened bread, which would be sort of like a cracker. Dough that does not rise like bread. Verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Jews ate with bare feet, and this would be maybe something to, in our culture similar to us in the winter eating a meal with our snow boots on and our coat on. They're ready to run that night with their long robe tucked up in their belt, their sandals on their feet, a staff in their hand. This is not a meal on this night to sit around and to enjoy. Now we know that changes in time with the Passover ritual, but on this night they are to eat it ready to run at a moment's notice. Verse 12, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. This is the whole point. And God does not do this generation after generation mercifully. But we are to draw back to this time and know that this is the evidence that God is God. In this horrifying night, He strikes all the firstborn. Of Egypt. But the blood, verse 13, will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So it is the blood on the doorposts that provides protection, not magical protection, as if the blood itself somehow has this power in it. The blood of the sacrificial animal on their doorposts attests to the worshiper's faith in God's protection and in His promise to deliver them. So it's really an evidence of faith in the Word and the promise of God. But we ask the question, protect them from what? The answer is to protect them not from Egypt, not from some indiscriminate plague or disease that will visit them, but to protect them from the judgment of God. The emphasis of the Exodus is not only deliverance from bondage, but protection from God's judgment. We live in a world of sin. We live in a world that is fallen and broken and filled with death. This is the realm in which we are. But there can be escape from this death this night and the judgment of God with the blood applied over the door frame and on the sides of the door. This theme is fully consistent with the rest of the Bible. In fact, it provides a base for us to understand the rest of Scripture. This is how it works. 
Salvation from the judgment of God is necessary. This is not a theme our culture welcomes. It's not something that you're supposed to talk about in public. But God is a God of judgment. If He is the God of the Bible, then there is a judgment that comes from the hand of God against sin. We've got to come to terms with this God of judgment. But the Bible is also consistent on this point, that salvation from the judgment of God never comes through our goodness. It is by grace that we are saved. This not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. This is a gift of God to the Israelites to put this blood on their doorpost to be delivered from the just judgment of God even upon them. They have no free pass simply because they are Israelites. But the Bible again is consistent here that it is not on the basis of our good works that we are rescued from this judgment of God. Nor does the Bible ever say that it is on the basis of bread and wine or on the basis of the water of baptism or something of the like. The Bible consistently teaches that it is through the shed blood that we are rescued from the judgment of God. It takes blood, not mere ritual, and not our good works. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In other words, without the sacrifice of life, no other means of salvation is really sufficient before God because the wages of sin is death. Not simply the death of an animal, but our death. So somehow there must be a shedding of blood to provide forgiveness. Now we're going to plow a little bit further, if you'll hang with me here. But there's a very curious thing that happens in the text here in verse 14. God instructs Israel concerning the ritual commemoration of the Exodus before they ever exit. Now think about that. God is not biting his nails hoping this thing works out the way he envisions it. It's going to happen. He lays out the ritual commemoration of this event for generations to come. What would happen if Pharaoh changed his mind? Would it mess with the plan of God? Would he not know what to do? God knows where this is headed. And he lays out the future ritual. But there's a second point that's very interesting on that matter. The history of the Exodus is inseparably tied to the ritual festivals of Passover and unleavened bread. In other words, we don't go through the Exodus and on the other side God says, you know, that was really neat. Now let's commemorate that in a festival. What should we do? Let's kind of think of some ways that we can remember what happened there. No, God talks about the festival before the Exodus. And so what takes place in this exodus is integrally tied together with the festival itself. I quote from one whose ideas I don't borrow on a lot of things, but Fretheim says, The ritual is set in place before the event occurs. Story and liturgy have been so integrally interwoven that they cannot be understood properly in isolation from each other. I don't follow him in all that he does with that. But I think he sees a very important point here. The exodus is connected with the ritual because the ritual comes before the event. And so there is connected together not only these people with the exodus, but all of those who participate in the ritual to come in commemorating it. So by establishing the ritualistic commemoration, the future generations will participate in this event in a unique way. Now God instructs His people concerning this Passover festival. We'll go through this fairly quickly. Verse 14, This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come, and you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Again, we see that God's not wondering about the outcome. In His mind, Israel's already liberated. He's establishing the festival before the actual exodus, linking the two together, providing later generations an experience of the exodus in the festival. 
Verse 15, for seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. That is excommunicated from the people of God for failing to follow God's law here. Very quickly, the Passover festival and the unleavened bread festival are technically separate festivals, but they run right together and they're so closely connected that it's hard to distinguish them. But the festival of unleavened bread is longer in duration. It is seven days of eating unleavened bread, and anyone who eats, as I mentioned here, as the text says at the end of verse 15, will be cut off from Israel. It's that important. Now, verse 16, on the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day, do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. So on the first and seventh days, the Israelites are to assemble. They're to do no work other than providing food. We remember, just as a side note, Jesus died the seventh day of unleavened bread, which fell that year on a Sabbath So there was no food preparation. Now this is typical of Eastern uh, text. The instructions are repeated here in greater detail for emphasis. There's sort of, here's the basic point, now let's go into greater detail. So we'll read this quickly. But verse 17, Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. To the mind of some of us comes the uh, setter that was performed for us here a few weeks or a month or two ago. Uh, and you remember the running around and trying to find yeast anywhere. It's somewhat of a symbol and a ritual, but here's the connection with the text of Scripture. Responding now to God's instructions, Moses summons, verse 21, all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. The destroyer may be a death angel. It's probably more just a personification of death. God is the one who strikes the Egyptians. That is made clear in the text. Now there's a note here that we need to stop and make. This is interesting, something that I've learned in this. I guess I've always thought about passing over the Passover as death passing over the homes of the Israelites. But if we note the text very carefully in verse 23, it says that God will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and God will pass over that doorway and will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses. So Passover is really less God passing over in judgment, though he is, of course, doing this, but probably more, as Victor Hamilton points out, the idea of God protecting his people, passing over them to protect them from judgment, his own judgment. Interesting, isn't it? These tentacles reach right through to the end of the Bible. God standing in protection of his people, protecting them from his own judgment, covering them, passing over them in protection. Verse 24, he says, Obey these instructions as lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. Don't fail to do so, Moses says. This ceremony is literally the word service. As Casuto says, Israel was to leave the service of Pharaoh for the service of the Lord. And there again is such tremendous application for us as we seek the salvation of God and receive that salvation by His grace. 
Salvation is a departure from servile obedience to the spirit of this age, and it marks entrance into a life of worshiping God. You know, Eden Baptist Church is God's people. We are never more alive. We are never who we were purchased by God to be any more than when we worship. It is for this that God purchased us out of this world. I do not mean by that merely, I must add this, to sing. As worship is so often confused with merely singing. It includes that. But when we do gather as a church to consider the Word of God, to pray, to sing, and when we worship God even in private, we are never more what God has made us to be than what we are then. He brings His people out of slavery to the spirit of the age to walk into the glories of His worship, which we will enjoy throughout all eternity. Again, not simply that heaven is a church service. Honestly, that would bore every last one of us to death, to be in a church service for eternity. But that worship is everything that pertains to the life of God in us, which will have its highlights in assembly and worship, as it does here in this world. It is for worship that God has purchased us. To see His glories and to lift high the praise of His name. To rejoice in His presence. It is for this that we've been called out of this world. And how tempted we are to draw from that world around. And how sad it is to say at the very verge of this exodus that Israel did not keep the Passover. For many, many years of their history, they kept no Passover unleavened bread festival. The Passover and unleavened bread are a fiddly ritual, including a day in church. And when your heart grows distant from God, it is easy to disregard such a ritual. And they did for years and years and years. But when Israel came back in the worship of God, it was back to this Passover meal that they returned and to the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remember whence they came. And so should we as we gather with God's people. Verse 26, And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Tell the next generation this. This Passover festival is calibrated to generate question. The next generation is to actively participate in the Exodus event by participating in its commemoration and seeking to understand its meaning in the ritual. One rabbi in the Mishnah says, In every generation a man must, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. And so we sing the song, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh no, obviously we didn't stand there when Christ was crucified, but were you there when they crucified my Lord? Through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can say we were there. We entered that event and we died with Christ and we have risen with Him to new life. And so the ancient Israelites were to identify in this meal with the exodus and the deliverance of God. And this we commemorate in the Lord's Supper as we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. That's an amazing phrase. If you've been with us through the series, that rings back, doesn't it, to 431. Remember, Moses comes back to Egypt and he meets with the elders of, of Israel and he says, God has seen your misery. And what did they do? They bowed their heads and worshipped. Now between here and there, they've been awful mad at Moses and Aaron for causing all this trouble in Egypt. But they come back again now to the place of worship and know that God is at work and will deliver His people. 
And that event, that horrifying event, comes down on the head of the Egyptians. In verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. From a human perspective, this is a horrifying event. And in our pity toward our fellow human being, we should see it no other way. On the other hand, we must remember that nothing will stop God from rescuing His people. By killing Israelites, Exodus 1, Pharaoh was playing God, and God acts here to set the record straight. He alone is God. Pharaoh put his hand on the firstborn of God, And God puts his hand on the firstborn of Egypt, and God wins. Pharaoh was claiming the life of God's people. God, in full justice, stands forward and claims the life of these Egyptians. This is a severe punishment. We must remember, however, that God cannot share his glory with another. And Pharaoh is standing up to claim this glory was claiming God's glory over Israel, his people. He was a slave master. If we go back to the illustration at the beginning, he was the slave master claiming, these are mine. And God said, no, they're not. They're mine. They're mine. And with devastation, he has to make the point clear. We must also acknowledge that God has absolute sovereign authority over every life. God has never apologized for taking a life. And He never will. Life belongs to an all-wise God. Who must be trusted. As Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You cannot say that. You cannot think that unless you see the big picture. This world is not the end. This isn't it. This isn't the full story of what God is doing He has won the victory over death, and there's an empty grave that says this, but we know in our own experience that death isn't over yet. The battle has been won, the war has been won, but the skirmishes continue until he finally puts down death. But he's the author of life and death, and he knows what he's about. Death was never meant to be easy. And this was one excruciating night in Egypt. But in this realm of sin and death, God strives to make this point. I am God. And there is no other. May we take heart and hope in this, that no power in heaven or on earth will ever stop God from liberating His people from bondage. He will work through life and death and history and circumstances to liberate us from bondage. In fact, we learn here that this agenda is of primary importance to God in the outworking of human history. Where do historians look at all of this history? They look, historians and archaeologists swoon with regard for ancient Egypt. They still do to this day. You have a a traveling display of some pharaoh's remains and people flock to see it. If you're going to see a Channel 2 special on Egypt, it's probably about what? Pyramids or the Sphinx or the great glory of the pharaohs. We're still enamored to this day with the glories of Egypt. But what enamors God is His people by making no reference to the glory of God or the greatness of the pyramids or any of this in Egypt, to which we're still stunned today. We're still taken today. God essentially says, all of that is below my glory. 
but let's talk about my people. Because I love my people. And I will deliver them. And what happens in their life is of utmost importance to me. In man's sense of history, we give high priority to glitz and fame and wealth and power. God's view of history is wholly different. At the very heart of God's interest is the welfare of His people whom He has determined to rescue. He's not impressed by numbers. He's not impressed by fame or power. In God's view of history, a small act of kindness, a faithful witness of the Gospel, may be far more important than the election of a president or a peace treaty between warring nations. God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And she will bring forth a son, the angel says, and you will call his name Jesus because he will rescue his people from their sins. No kingdom on earth will ever match that of Jesus Christ when he returns in his kingdom to rule. Yet the angels say to those simple shepherds, here's the deal. He has come to rescue his people from their sin. He will rule in glory, but he has come on a mission to rescue his people. His ways are not our ways in all of this rescuing that He does as He uses life and death and circumstances to work out His saving purposes. His wisdom exceeds our capacities and sometimes we are knocked to our knees and we weep at the purposes of God. But again, we must come back in all of this to the cross And to see that God knows what He's about and has demonstrated His love for us, in fact, has brought down the greatest strike against Himself. And that leads us back to that point of the blood on the doorposts, because God knows that it is only through death that we can be redeemed. We move in Scripture from the Passover Lamb to the Lamb of God who becomes the Passover Lamb. As was read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, He is our redemption. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, He is our Passover Lamb. In Revelation 5 and verse 12, we will praise through all eternity the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. In other, Revelation 13, 8. Slavery in Egypt parallels our slavery to sin. And the only redemption from the judgment of God is for you to apply the blood of Jesus Christ to the doorposts of your heart. To know that you depend not on the waters of baptism, not on the bread and wine of the Eucharist, not upon the good works that you do, but upon the blood of Jesus Christ shed in behalf of the sinner. And I ask each of you pointedly and personally, Are you covered with the blood of Christ? Can you say, I have no other argument, I have no other plea. It is simply the blood of Jesus Christ that stands and pleads my case. I know that He laid down His life to pay the penalty of my sin, and I have applied that blood of covering to my heart. Are you covered? This meal of Passover melts into our understanding of the Lord's Supper and the new covenant that Christ established and speaks to us that this is my body, this is my blood. Not in a crassly, literalistic manner, but as a participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. Just as the Israelites participated in the Passover meal, participating in a sense in the Exodus, so we participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we commemorate together the Lord's Supper. And where does this end? It ends in the marriage supper of the Lamb in eternity, where those who are God's people will gather together and eat together again when Jesus has put to death, death. As he finalizes that process, wherever that marriage supper falls precisely in eschatological time frame, He will gather to eat with His people, 
who have trusted His death in their place as He rescues them from the realm of sin and death. God hasten that day. What would hold us to this world when we know that we can enter into the presence of God and be delivered from sin and death and Satan? This is a realm that is fallen and hurting and pulling apart at the seams. But there is a future for God's people. And God will do whatever it takes to rescue us. Let's praise Him together. Our Father, in this lengthy passage of Scripture, we see so much for which we thank You and praise You. We see so much that's even hard to take. But we rejoice together in the redemption that we find in Jesus Christ. We ask God for the final deliverance from death and hell, and we thank You, God, for what You have done and what You are providing to bring that redemption I pray for any who know you not as Savior and to whom the blood of Christ has not been applied by saving faith in his work. I pray that you bring them to the light and to see that the job has been done, that the work has been completed, that Christ was our final sacrifice in Passover lamb. Draw to yourself any who know you not as Savior. And I pray that we'd be reminded that it matters what side we're on. We're not on our own side, working our own way to God. We must be on your side. And in these literal, physical, historical events, you have demonstrated your power and your judgment. And I pray that it would drive us, Father, into your arms to receive your mercy. We do not always understand your ways, but we thank you for the promise that you are always working to rescue your people and that you will do so absolutely and completely in the end. And may each one of us know that we belong to you. We thank you for the Lamb of God who has taken our sin and paid the penalty. We stand in awe of your acts and we rejoice in your presence. Through Christ we pray. Amen.